Hello, and welcome to Voices from the Village, a podcast from the Wyoming Early Childhood Professional Learning Collaborative. We know it takes a village to raise a child, and Wyoming Early Childhood Educators, as an important part of that village, we made this podcast for you. I'm your host at the University of Wyoming, Nikki Baldwin, and today I am thrilled to introduce our guest, Dr. Pauline Harris. Dr. Harris is an expert in early literacy, and she's the Chair of Early Childhood Research at the University of South Australia School of Education. We've had the pleasure of working with Dr. Harris here at the University of Wyoming for the last couple of years, as she has helped us develop an early literacy credential for early childhood educators in our state. And um, I'm so glad that you're here with us, Pauline, and I'd like to hear a lot more about your experience and about you and your work. So I wanted to just take this first little bit and have you tell us a little bit more. Um, I love the story of how you connected with the University of Wyoming through a colleague of mine, a shared friend. Um, Would you tell us about how you ended up working with us in Wyoming? Oh, I certainly will. And and thank you for your very warm welcome. Um, Look, um, it was my great pleasure uh, to be working with Professor Cynthia Brock, Cindy, as we all know her, um, who is currently um, the endowed chair in literacy at the University of Wyoming. She actually um, was appointed to my university, the University of South Australia, um, some years ago now as um, a literacy academic. And it was in that capacity that I met Cindy. uh, And so excited was I that she was here with us that I invited her to join our team Uh, looking at how we could build local community capacity to foster preschool children's multilingual English, uh, I beg your pardon, multilingual literacies in English and in their home languages in Mm -hmm. Fiji. Uh, We were working in three communities with children and their families and they did not have access to preschools. So families and communities were really keen to know what they could do to bolster their children's literacy so they would be ready for their transition to school. So Cindy very happily joined the team and we were all delighted to be working together. So our collaboration just just grew from that, um, Nikki, and it just went from strength to strength. And now I'm working with Cindy in a number of different projects, including ones that are based in Wyoming and including ones that are based in Australia. That's amazing. And I do just have to add a special, my gratitude, for your collaboration with her, because somehow um, in all of that relationship building, I was able to get to know friends of yours from Fiji and spend a sabbatical in Fiji with them there at Fiji National University. So I fell in love with Fiji as well um, Mm -hmm. and and have been blessed by that experience. And especially because what they're doing in early childhood there is amazing. And quite frankly, in Australia and New Zealand, that you're part of the world um, is doing some amazing things for young children. So that's very nice to hear. And it's wonderful what serendipity can do for us in connecting people with one another. And I love that story about how we then connected with people yeah. in Fiji. Yes, Fiji is always in our heart. We're still writing out of that project where we're getting set now to develop a curriculum resource package out of that project mm-hmm. where we're going to bundle up the picture books that um, we co created with children and families. Um, and bundle those up as a resource because uh, they are written by children, with children, in their languages and their photographs um, and in English as well, and bundle that up with some guidelines for how we can do this kind of work with children and families and educators. So that's that's one of our big projects for the year coming up. That's amazing. I'm glad you mentioned that too because I think that's one reason I've, I've been so attracted to your work 
A couple of years ago, an, our literacy center at the university was wanting to develop out resources for early childhood educators. We knew that we needed to draw upon your expertise. And I think this is something I'd like for you to share with our listeners a little bit. There's just a different approach to literacy that you take and understand with early literacy. So in the United States, we're, we are obsessed with literacy. We prioritize it in a lot of ways, um, but there's not clear understanding about how that really works and looks for young children, for our youngest children. And so, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen this everywhere, but there's that tension about the things we're asking them to do um, that we think is in the name of literacy, but it actually tends to work against what, we're, what we really wanna make happen. And, and I think what you just shared about your work with children's voices and families, um, just the idea that literacy is a really authentic, meaningful thing in all of our lives and in young children's lives, that's the place we need to start. Um, that's what helped us know we needed to find you when we wanted to develop out resources for Wyoming. So can you just talk to our listeners and explain a little bit about how you understand literacy for our youngest children and how it develops and the kinds of things young children need to Absolutely. be able to have that literacy emerge for them? Absolutely. Look, your comments are really well taken, Nikki. It's, it's really important when we think about literacy to think about literacies and the different guises that literacies take in children's lives and to notice to open our eyes to notice what counts as literacies uh, rather than taking a reductionist approach that is preordained and preconceived, we need to really open our lens to considering all kinds of um, practices, all kinds of doings and ways of knowing that indeed count as literacies. And to do that kind of work, uh, we and I frame the work and including the work that I've worked on together with um, you, Nikki, and um, early child educators in Wyoming, is it's framed by a sociocultural perspective of literacies. And by that, we're talking about children engaging in literacies, activities, experiences, encounters in their life worlds for real purposes with real meaning across various modes and media. It could be across print. It could be um, non-print, digital literacies. It's visual literacies. It's also about music and song and dance. It's about reading the environment, which we, of course, discovered very potently in Fiji when young children are learning to read the environment, a very important school in cyclone country. And come cyclone season, you really are reading the sky and which way the leaves and the palms are swaying and blowing and how hard that, that wind is going. So literacies take account of a whole range of practices. Some of them are inherent to children's traditional cultural backgrounds. Some of them are um, more contemporarily based. But we need to understand that for children to engage in these literacy encounters um, and to be continuing to be and to become the literate people they already are and mm -hmm. are becoming, they need to um, they need resources for making meaning, for being able to engage with literacies to you know fulfill real life purposes, to be able to crack the code of the various ways in which text is presented, whether it is through written language or it's through visual um, modes of expression or something else. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also is important that as um, children make sense of 
what they're encountering as literate people, that they are encouraged to think more deeply, even critically and creatively about the meanings they are constructing that others have put out there or that they are constructing themselves as mm -hmm. literate people and creators of their own texts. Yeah, thank you, Pauline. Let's let's dig into that a little bit deeper because I think some people listening might be getting caught up on this plural literacies versus literacy. And I, I really want us to flush that out for people. So I think what I would love to hear more about what you mean by that and maybe some examples, but also I just wanted to toss out that I feel like the frame that we often approach it from when we speak of literacy is like an event that involves writing or reading text. And, yeah. uh, and so that's, that's the end game for children. And if we're going to teach that in quotes, um, then that's like separate from a child's regular experiences in their day. We have a time devoted to literacy. We sit them down and make them practice some kind of skills. And we call that literacy. So I think that is the frame that a lot of us are used to seeing because we experienced it in school. So can you help our listeners understand more about why you're insisting on that plural literacies, which I think is so important, and, yeah. um, and how that differs? Okay. Well, look, we insist on it. I insist on it because it ensures that, we, as I said before, we broaden the lens that enables us to see and recognise the capable literate child, mm -hmm. the capable literate child in the many guises that might take. For example, little four-year-old Gadeep in Hilary Min's study uh, was going to the religious temple each day. He's a child of a Punjabi family who was living in London and he would come across words um, in his Punjabi script that said ladies' shoes and men's shoes. Now, those shoe, those, that the meaning of those words were inscribed very early on in his life with very special contextual meaning. But the meaning that those words take depends on where you find those words if you find them in the temple it's meaning remove your shoes and ladies you put your shoes over there and men you put your shoes over there if you find those words elsewhere then like in a department store then it is signaling where you can go buy <laughs> men's shoes or women's shoes but the thing is when we see go deep look at that engage with that sign and remove his shoes accordingly and put them in the correct place that is certainly an act of religious deference, but it's also an act of literacy because it's engaging with that text, which is, is, is become probably habituated um, in, you know, in, in time. But he's engaging with that ongoing message inscribed in that very simple text to, to remove issues and put them in a designated place. Now, we might not think that that's a literate act. We might take that for granted. Or we might think about the child who is, you know, listening to a storybook and engaging with, um, well, not engaging very much until actually, and this, this comes from my own teaching experience, uh, when I was reading uh, Sophie and the Rainbow to um, a group of children and I had a little fellow there who was being very distracted and very fidgety as he was wont to do and I turned a page to a double page spread of Sophie in a field of sunflowers with a rainbow in the background and this little one just stopped transfixed and said beautiful beautiful now this child was diagnosed as um, a remedial reader and was being withdrawn um, from class etc to no great avail but what I came to realise is that he was very visually oriented in his literacy or literacies. He, he, you know, his strength was his visual literacy, 
which is one of the literacies we can talk about. Sure. And once I realised that connection, and it only came out serendipitously, that I was then able to build on that and create experiences for him where he could engage with visual literacy and use that as a bridge to the print, you know, to the written yes. word. Yeah. Um, so it's that it, it, the broader we can visualise um, and define what literacy or literacies are, the more we're going to actually recognise the strengths that children already have and how we as teachers and educators can build on those strengths. Now, when we went to Fiji, the communities there were very keen to de develop books for their children because they didn't have books. They, you know, And so they were thinking they don't have anything going on with literacy because they didn't have books. Right. Right. So we thought, oh, okay, well, let's find out. We didn't want to make any judgments. We, in our white Western ways of thinking, uh -huh. do not want to go into Fijian communities and say, well, this is what literacy is. This is these are the schools that children need, and this is how we're going to teach them those schools. Mm -hmm. So we instead went in and we 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 sat and we watched and we talked and we engaged with just the flow of day-to-day -day living in the communities um, and talked with children and talked with the families about the kinds of literacies they did, the kinds of activities they engaged in. And soon we realised that these children were living very rich and sophisticated literate lives, mm -hmm. but just not in that traditional sense of the written word. Yes. You know, they're engaged in music, they're engaged in textile crafts, to, and you know, that carry deep cultural meaning. Um, they were engaged in performing meques, traditional Fijian songs. Mm -hmm. They would be engaged with, um, you know, doing chalk drawings on the ground or, you know, marking out drawings on the sand with a big stick. You know, there are all kinds of ways in which literacy took form and took shape and we were able to build on those. But it was really important that we didn't displace what the children were already doing. We built on strength. We, we insist also that we take a strengths-based view of children's literacies yeah. and not a deficit view. Yeah. And that's we built on it and then we did create the books because that's what families nonetheless wanted and we did to add to their repertoire of, that was already very rich. Yeah, I think that a key there um, that I just, a point that I just want to draw attention to again is that this insistence on um, seeing what is there with children, mm. what they do know, because when we define literacy so narrowly as like the act of reading and writing a word, then what what we're saying is that it, a child who's not doing that act yet is not literate. It's it's terrible if you think about it. Um, it's also just wrong, um, but that is that is what we tend to do. We develop assessment tools that are that measure what children cannot do. Um, and so uh, in early childhood, there's always been a real pushback against that, which is why I think so many of us have, have found a home um, in early childhood because, because of that insistent on, insistence on understanding where children are coming from and um, understanding them originating, originating from them um, and not from some measure of an adult, uh, you know, that we then push down. Yes. yes, I would like to interject there, Nikki, too. I just so agree so strongly with what you've said. And as early childhood educators, we really have to protect that. We really have to yeah. protect that space in which we do regard children as, number one, capable literate people. Mm -hmm. We view early childhood literacies as literacies that already are existing, not literacies into the future. And, mm -hmm. and we do, um, do recognise the multiple ways in which children 
are literate and are learning and continuing to become literate. And that push down effect is something we have had to fight um, against mm-hmm. in Australia for certain and in other parts of our world too be- with the schoolification of preschool and early childhood education, mm-hmm. you know, because in the early school years there is a great emphasis on um, some very important basic skills of reading, for example. And it's not that the view we take, um, for example, in these professional learning modules and certainly in my early years literacy generally, it's not the view I take that phonics is not important. Phonics, amongst many other skills, is important to, to reading. But so are a lot of other aspects of literacy, and I don't see the reason why we should be prioritising some skills at the expense of other schools and at the expense of children's engagement. Yes. We, must, we mustn't snuff out children's desire to read, to write, to create text, to engage with text, to be literate, to continue to be literate. Mm-hmm. You know, we mustn't snuff that desire out because without engagement, there's no learning. No, and, uh, and the further you remove what we're asking children to do from their lived experience of of literacies that are, are, it's so rich. It's right there in their world. Yes. All we have to do is tap into that. And then their engagement's there. They're, they're with us. They're interested. They want to learn. Um, exactly. They're ready to go, you know. Exactly. Um, one, of the, one of the first anecdotes I came across, through, well, it's not more than an anecdote. It was a documented case study. I came upon it way a long, long time ago. Now as an undergraduate student training to be a teacher, was of a little boy called John who, again, was diagnosed as a remedial reader and he was being um, withdrawn for reading and he and he hated reading. He was a reluctant reader and he didn't like it at all. So off he went to his remedial tutor who, luckily, I feel, was very enlightened. And he told his tutor, you're not going to make me read. I know I've been sent to learn to read with you, but I'm not going to read. You're not going to make me read and there's nothing you can do about it. So he was very emphatic about it. So the tutor went along with that. So, okay. So what do you like doing? And he said he liked making model aeroplanes. So, okay, the next time the tutor, sure enough, had a model aeroplane kit. Well, let's make an aeroplane together. And he, John, very happily engaged with making that aeroplane. He was very happy with it. Thank you very much. And, uh, uh, you know, and over the next couple of sessions, they finish that aeroplane and then they start and then the tutor start to talk about the bits and pieces of the aeroplane and talk to John about. And he was quite amazed at what John knew about aeroplanes and the different mm-hmm. bits and parts of it all and and the engineering design. And he said, wow, this is really interesting. So well, why, how about we, you know, we might want to do a bit of labelling of this aeroplane. And, oh, John was all on board and, you know, yeah, let's let's create some labels for this part of the aeroplane, that part of the aeroplane, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then after this, this is in the pre-digital age, so after that um, the tutor brought in some horror books uh-huh. <laughs> into the, uh, into the uh, sessions and John, without realising it, of course, was very keenly engaging with the books and uh-huh. with reading the books. <laughs> and uh-huh. so it was. So you could see where that headed. And and he realised at one point, it came a point he realised he'd been completely duped and he, he did say to his children, you know, like I said, I came along saying you weren't going to make me read and I've just not realised I've done nothing but. It's due to recognising that creating a model aeroplane, it's, it's an act of spatial literacy, and then mm-hmm. talking about it, it's, it's, it's oral literacy, to be able to talk about a topic at length and in a meaningful and yeah. purposeful 
way. And then building on that spatial literacy, the oral literacy, he then introduced the written word with the labels and okay. making connections to the child's prior experiences and so forth. I've got lots of stories like that, but, yeah, you know, I love that. that's powerful. Yeah, and um, I love that example. And I think it also helped, it may help the way you just spoke about that, our listeners to understand this idea of literacies again. Um, would you, is it safe to say that you would define a literacy as a representation of an idea, some child's yeah. representation of an idea, and they yeah. represent ideas in all sorts of ways? Yes. But when you're doing that act of representing something with something else, an abstract idea with something else, so you know what an airplane is and you're going to build that using yeah. some tools you, to represent that airplane. That's a literacy. Is that would, would you define it in that way? Okay. Yeah. Yes. That's Great. lovely. Yeah. yeah. So then it, it, it makes me think of the hundred languages of children. Yes. Right. Which is the same idea. Those are languages. We're calling them literacies. It's how, it's how children communicate what they see and understand in the world around them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So who are we to strip that bear? Yeah, who are we to say there's only one way they can do that, that we value? Yes, yeah. yes. The best way to ensure success for children's literacy learning is to build on what they already know, what they are interested in doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the evidence is so clear on that. And my anecdotal experience as a teacher is so clear on that. I think many of our experiences would show that to be the case. Yeah. I mean, uh, one, one thing that I struggle with that I frequently see, and this is all very well intended, is that I feel like those children who have been identified as struggling readers, we often uh, even take greater steps to remove meaning because we think what they need to do is practice additional practice of the skill they're struggling with that they're probably struggling with because it doesn't make a lot of sense to them right now because it's not tapping into meaning in their lives. So we remove them further with a tutor who spends more time practicing a skill that's removed from meaning. Yes. And it's a vicious cycle, I feel like, where then that child is just understanding that none of this, whatever's happening in school, doesn't mean anything in my life. Um, so then you end up with a child like that boy who just hates reading. He thinks reading is a total waste of his time. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I think so. I think so. And look, those efforts are well intentioned. And certainly there are readers with difficulties that do need particular and specialist kinds of yes. work with them. So yes. I don't wish to diminish that. Sure. But that doesn't mean that works for all children um, and that every child needs that same kind of attention. And that is a concern that, you know, for me, there is no magic bullet, but if there were one, if there was to be a magic bullet, then it is watch children, listen to children, look at children, see what they're doing, see how they represent ideas, see how they're engaging and see what turns them on as literate people, you know, and build on the joy and build on their capability. Yeah. Do you have a message for preschool teachers? Let's think about preschool teachers who... Uh, are they they may recognize that they may agree with everything you just said but they may be feeling some pressure that okay that's all true but there's one specific kind of literacy that's really valued in the kindergarten my child is or these children are going to go attend and they might feel really torn you know this is what I would like to do but I feel like I have to do this other thing to get them quote ready do you, what are your thought what would your advice be for them uh, what, what would you want to say to that audience 
Well, yeah, and it's a really good question. And I have worked with preschool educators in my own state here in South Australia with very um, real pressures like that. There is quite mm. a push down in our preschools these days. So your question is very real. Um, and sometimes, you know, preschool educators do have to work with those mandates. But here, you know, they have become mandates, some of that oh. stuff. But it's how we contextualise that work. I think we can still do that work, but how we contextualise it and, you know, make the connections between perhaps, you know, the focus is on, you know, some basic skills work around reading the written word. Well, mm -hmm. how can we make that meaningful? How can we make that enjoyable in a way that makes sense to the child and builds on what they can do? For example, yeah. in the little case of the, the little boy's visual literacy, how can we bring the joy of his the child's visual literacy, if that's what turns on the child, into that space? Mm -hmm. um, I very much favour Sylvia Ashton Warner's organic approach mm -hmm. um, to reading, and that very much influenced our Fiji work as well, where you start with the child, and you take the and and she wrote most poignantly that first words that children read must mean something to the child. They must be part of his being. Mm -hmm. So taking those first words, you know, that's the work we essentially did in Fiji with preschool children when we co-created the books with them. It was about their ideas, what was important in their world that they so special they wanted to make a book about it, you know, right. and take photos and make up the words and have those words translated into their home languages and into English. What could be so special? And that's the work we did. It's, it's pretty simple work and it's not, it's not groundbreaking work. It's 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 really important work, uh -huh. and we mustn't lose that the simplicity of that. We mustn't be duped by the simplicity of that work. It is simple work, um, but then from that we were then able to build the basic skills. For example, Cindy in the community she was working in then worked with children to build alphabet charts based on the words based on words taken from their stories and you know and so their representational skills their code breaking skills were um, explicitly developed in a very focused way but it mm -hmm. came from what the child had created it was organic yeah. so a preschool teachers can take that kind of a principle Mm -hmm. And yes, enter those skills they are required to develop, but do it in that organic way, that holistic way, that mm -hmm. way that makes sense to children and engages children's interest. That's my yeah. advice. I think I, I love that advice. And um, I have the opportunity to work with kindergarten teachers quite a bit um, in my outreach work. And one of the things, ways that I try to describe that to them is whatever, whatever it is you're being asked to do, just try to bring it closer to the child. Just yes. bring it a step closer to the child, whatever it is you can, we can all do that. We may not be able to choose exactly the curriculum we've been given, but we can find ways to bring it closer to the child. Mm, yeah. I love that. Closer to the child. I love that. That's a lovely way to put it. And that's so real. Mm. Um, Pauline, a lot of your work is about children who are multilingual. Yes, it is. Um, can you, can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned about multilingual children and literacies. Oh, gosh, that is really exciting work. There is so much wonderful research out there being done on multilingual children that really dispels the myths about, you know, if a child is learning um, languages, learning English while in addition to their home languages, you know, we really have to discourage the home languages or else it will hold back their English learning. Yeah. 
and development. Well, that myth's been long exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we in fact find is that there are many rich benefits for children who are multilingual in terms of their cognitive development, their literacy learning, their personal and social development, you know, their um, later academic success, later life chances, you know, the more languages a person can speak, it, the world open literally does actually open up. Yes. So, um Millie Gort, based in um, Colorado, and I had the great um, pleasure of co-editing a special issue of the Journal of Early Childhood Literacy on emergent biliteracy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, her work on translanguaging is just amazing where she looks at how children, you know, draw on different aspects of the languages they know or are learning, including their home languages, including English, uh-huh. to make meaning in a, in a hybrid way. It's like they, they develop their own hybrid language to, mm-hmm. to make meaning, as indeed children also draw on not just words but drawing or play, you know, dramatic gesture, whatever, mm-hmm. to also make and represent meaning. Mm-hmm. So that um, reading Millie Gortz and her colleagues' work is just amazing to me. And I just get really excited to see the the incredible strengths and 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 agility that these children show in that mm-hmm. kind of multilingual engagement. Um, and that you know we are to encourage multilingual um, strengths that is in the best interests of the child from their cultural point of view, their identity point of view, and indeed their literacy point of view. And the International Literacy Association as well, you know, made the point in their position paper that this is an absolute priority, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, when we silence children's languages, we, we, we crush their cultural identities. And that was the balance we were making in the Fiji work because families very much wanted children to become proficient in English and in English literacies uh-huh. because of transition to school in Fiji, where, as you know, English is the official language of schooling. But at the same time, it was really important to to the families and to the children that they continued to be able to relate to members of the family in their vernacular languages mm-hmm. and to continue to maintain their sense of cultural identity, even though it's evolving in more contemporary ways to even what their parents have known. It just comes back to that same idea of, of children's strengths. It's there. We just need to, to find it. What oh. the amazing things that they're doing as they make sense of their world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was just we were just watching a film the other day. I can't remember what the movie was, but somebody asked a fellow from um, Germany, so do you speak English? Oh yes, I speak yes, I speak English and I speak French and I speak Italian and I speak a little bit of German and I speak you know what I mean. <laughs> you know, it, you know, and it was it was done very much that that whole line in the dialogue had a point of very much tongue in cheek, but mm-hmm. you know that so often you we, we might hear about children who are learning English as an additional language or oh, they've got no language <laughs> or they've got no English right. but hey but they've got all this other linguistic richness all these other languages so uh-huh. we need to honor that. Can you talk a little bit about infants and toddlers so our our youngest children and mm-hmm. what that looks like so if there's teachers of infants and toddlers listening into this and they're yeah. understanding what you're talking about um, especially if children are producing vocal, like if they're producing words, but if, if you have an infant who's not speaking yet, how can you understand the idea of literacies and emerging literacy with infants? 
and toddlers. Uh, that's really interesting. There I draw on the work of Claire Painter and looking at um, what it is the what are the meanings that infants are, are trying to and are in fact um, yeah endeavouring to convey before they you know are speaking any kind of conventional language that can be understood by others. That's obviously where the close relationship with an uh, an infant is so important because you get to know context and that's what you have to uh -huh. pay attention. To understand children's utterances, you have to look at the context in which the utterances are being made and really listen to the intonation, <laughs> the way uh -huh. the expression in which the, um, the, the utterance is being made. So, you know, and I do look at literacies in that sense of, um, you know, children using their vocalisations to convey a particular meaning, whether it's a reflective meaning like, oh, look at that, or it's more an instrumental meaning like, I want that, or I'm hungry, you know, feed me, or <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> change my nappy, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, reading with infants and toddlers is just so very, very important too. Um to encourage, you know, children's engagement with various ways in which meaning visually and through words yeah. is presented. Um, it's never too early to, to read and read frequently with children mm -hmm. and to talk about what's going on around, you know, research has shown when um, adults engage with children and talk about what's going on like changing a nappy or um, being fed or watching something on the television or going on an outing, talking mm -hmm. about what's going on and verbalising that is um, a great um, way to, to foster children's language and literacy development. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and as you're talking about that and, and the importance of context, it just strikes me that the importance of relationship is obvious then because if you don't have a relationship with an infant, you don't you don't know them, you don't know what they're trying to communicate, but once you know them well and they know you, that's when the really beautiful communication happens. You understand what that the expression on their face means um, yes. and what that particular vocalization means and that all of that counts, that those are the things children need to develop literacies. So I, I just, I like the idea of just helping caregivers understand that they're doing it. They're doing it already. When they're meeting infants' needs, they're helping them become illiterate person yeah and through song and music as well mm -hmm. that's music really nice means of expressing and representing meaning so yeah, yeah I think it's really important as well so one other piece I'd love of your work I'd love for you to just mention for us is about work with families in particular so ah, yes. uh, when you're thinking about um in the in a child care or a preschool setting what would you be encouraging educators to do to involve families ah well that's um a really that's a very timely question because we're embarking on a project now in Adelaide where we are working with preschool educators to do that very thing oh wonderful yeah so let me talk a little bit about that as a way of an example we're, we're only just getting the ethics for it now we've only just got the funding for it so it's not begun yet mm -hmm. but what we are planning to do is using a family literacy approach mm -hmm. where um will be engaging with children um, well in this case they'll be newly arrived children from elsewhere in the world mm -hmm. um, but 
but whether or not they are newly arrived or they are actually, you know, born in Australia or in the US, whatever, it, it's the same sort of principle. What we're going to be doing is, create, you know, implementing a series of sharing circles mm-hmm. and where we're going to be having conversations with families that and their children, first of all, with families, just to talk about, just to talk about. Well, like we did in Fiji, you know, get to know the families. Um, it'll be the families, educators and the researchers. Eventually we're going to have children involved in these sharing circles as well. But first of all, we're just keeping it to the, you know, the parents or primary caregivers and the educators and the researchers. Um, just to talk about, you know, home and community life um, and the role that literacy has in their lives and um and what, you know, what families' aspirations are for their children mm-hmm. and for the language or languages that children speak. Um, and, you know, what it is that families would like to see happen um, in terms of their children's literacies, um, mm-hmm. engagement and learning. And we're going to be extending those sharing circles with um, children and we're very much emphasising that what we're doing here is we're all coming together as co-learners, learning about one another and sharing our stories. Mm-hmm. And what, what we want to do is build a storytelling community um, with families in those sharing circles, with families and their children. So what yeah. are the stories we want to tell? And we'll all share our own personal stories. We'll share our own personal stories. It's something we're comfortable sharing about. Yeah. Um, and we'll invite you know, and eventually that, that will lead us to ch- focusing on children and developing children as uh, children developing themselves as storytellers with, mm. you know, compelling stories to tell and books to make and other forms of expression um, to create as well. So I would encourage preschool educators to think about how they could use something like sharing circles. And there's a lot of literature out there about family literacy approaches and things like sharing circles where mm-hmm. you just have the conversation. You just have the conversation um, with families um, about, you know, you know mm-hmm. about the sorts of things I've just talked about mm-hmm. and starting then to co-develop stories together and the materials that go with that. Uh, that's what we did in Fiji, actually, and it's really interesting in my experience as a researcher and as a teacher earlier that when we engage in that kind of shared activity, shared conversation, including co-creating books together and telling stories or co-creating other kinds of literacies resources, that's when for deeper conversations can mm-hmm. happen about, well, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. How does this help? How does this help my child learn to read and write? What's the what's this got to do with anything? Yeah. You know, so but it's in that context of shared activity where the educators also learn from families and from the children more about them and more about their literacy strengths and so on and so forth. Uh-huh. I love that. I I just a couple of things I just want to restate because I think they're so important is the the idea of being co-learners and the power in that. Yes. Um, and then, and the idea of building a storytelling community, I just think that's beautiful. Why mm. else do we want to be literate if it's not to hear each other's stories? Yeah. And so it just seems very healing for the world, frankly, to approach it in that way. And that's doable for any teacher. Just become, create a storytelling classroom, build a storytelling community in your classroom and involve families in that. And yeah. you can't go wrong. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. I think <laughs> there's a lot more. There's a lot more there, but. 
No, no, but it is. But that's the thing. Some of these ideas are deceptively simple and I think they are doable. And I love your word healing, that healing dialogue, because it takes dialogue and dialogue takes real listening. that we really have to listen and take the time to listen. So we need to set up the structure that that listening and that sharing can happen. That's why sharing circles. And we're all sitting on the floor together or in whatever way people are comfortable. Not everyone could yeah. comfortably sit on the floor. So we all got to be comfortable. But we're all the point is we're all sitting in a circle. It's egalitarian in that sense. Um, and we're all, you know, interacting, facing one another um, on an even footing. Yeah. Mm. I love that. Yeah. Um. Mm. That's amazing. Thank you, Pauline. That went very quickly. I could keep doing this for hours with you. Our time is short now. And I, um, this is a podcast for uh, early childhood professionals in Wyoming, and it's about professional learning. And one of the things that we like to ask every guest is um, what's something that you've learned recently? It can be anything, but what's something that you've learned that you're excited about? recently? I think something that I'm really excited about is what I've just talked about, and that is the power of story. I've, I've always known about the power of story, but I think I'm, I'm increasingly excited about the potential that seems never ending. You know, the power of listening to story, the power of you know, developing our own story. I'm excited about children's potential and continuing to learn as I do as a researcher, as a learner. Being a researcher is nothing if not about being a learner. That's true. Learning about children's insights into their world, Mm -hmm. into their present world and their future worlds. And that's why your words healing dialogue so resonated with me because another project work I'm doing and indeed with Cindy Brock and other colleagues is engaging with children as active citizens of their world, Mm -hmm. you know, and really listening to what they perceive about their world and what they experience and what they desire and what they would like to see happening in their worlds. Um, and viewing that and, and learning more. I'm excited to be learning more about children as active, capable citizens of their world and the mm. insights that they bring that can enlighten us all and help us heal across diversity and difference. That's what I'm excited about. That's beautiful, Pauline. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and just I, what I would want everyone to leave uh, this interview thinking about is that they can do this. This is work they can do. We all can do this. So just thank you, Pauline. I appreciate your wisdom so much. I'm so excited. I do have to just tell everyone that's listening that we will begin offering through the Professional Learning Collaborative this early literacy credential that Pauline has developed for us over the course of a year. It's incredible work that she's done to be able to make all of these ideas really doable. So there's more. There's a lot of meat to this. It's we're t- we, Today we were talking about the foundation. I really think about how we approach children and where we start. But there's so much more that um, Pauline knows and that we can offer anyone who's interested in learning more about these early literacies and how to, to help develop that in children in Wyoming. So keep your ears open and we'll be sharing information about we're going to be offering that statewide very, very soon. And so um, I'm thrilled to offer that to everybody. And just want to thank you again, Pauline, for joining us today from across the world. It's been wonderful to have you here where it's a different day there than it is here as we're doing this interview. (laughs) A different season. It's summer here. It's a different season, a different day. 
toilets flush a different direction, all those things, but we can still. Oh, that's that's true too. Yeah. And we all say good day, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thanks a lot. And, and thank you listeners for joining us on Voices from the Village. Um, this podcast is funded by the Federal Preschool Development Grant, and it's produced here at the University of Wyoming. And I just want to give special thanks to Bryce Tugwell, who's our producer and editor, and just invite you all uh, to join us again. Thanks a lot.